Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. Hey, another new episode of Stargate Archives, and another tale of woe as we had a lot of technical difficulties with this episode. And truth be told, it probably would have been easier to re-record it, but that close to Christmas, I did not want to bother Jeff because time with his family. So, I made do. It actually came out pretty well. I'm quite pleased with it, but it took a while. So, enjoy. Welcome to the Stargate Archives. This time, we are going to be looking at an episode of Stargate SG-1, chosen by a long-time Gatecast co-host, Jeff. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hello. It's been a while, mate. Yes, it has. And right away, I'll thank you for joining me this close to Christmas. Like everybody, we've mm. all got better things to do than record podcasts. <laughs> Cheers, anyway. No problem. <laughs> so what I have been doing is asking somebody to be a guest on the show and for them to choose an episode of Stargate to talk about from uh, any of the three live-action series. I say live action because, well, I am never going to record an episode of Stargate Infinity ever again. <laughs> so, Jeff, which episode did you pick? Ergo. Oh, yes, one of Alan's favourite episodes. <laughs> yeah, but it was chosen in his honour. <laughs> I'm sure he'll really appreciate that. I've got to let him know. <laughs> I was never quite sure why Alan really hated this episode. I know he's not a fan of Dom DeLuise, but come on, Dom DeLuise is a legend. How can you not like anything he's in? That's For me, that's half the attraction of the episode is Dom DeLuise getting to be Dom DeLuise for 45 minutes. Indeed. While I was going through his IMDb today, I saw Haunted Honeymoon. I thought, I haven't seen that in years. So I watched, this, watched it this afternoon. Absolutely hilarious. Oh, I saw that in the cinema when it came out. Yeah, that was, uh, I was living with my grandparents at that time in between a transcontinental move and my cousin and I that I rarely got to hang out with. We actually went and saw that together as a rare uh, afternoon hanging out with family. Family that was close in age to one another. Yeah, really entertaining movie. Yeah. <laughs> of course, back in the day, limited to what you could see at the cinema. There weren't 12, 23 multiplexes about. You pretty much had to watch whatever they showed. Right. Yeah, I think there's maybe two or three screens in the whole place. In a suburb of St. Louis, it wasn't even a small town. Yep, no question. Cinemas have uh, certainly changed over the years. Well, they're already turning towards being very, um, as my middle school students would say, bougie, with the, the meal service and the, the, the drinks and stuff in them. Perhaps they'll just get a bit more high-end. Yeah, who knows? With 2021 and COVID, it could become more of a, a theatre-like experience. Lower audiences, but more high-tier. And a blanket to cuddle under. I've seen that. <laughs> yeah, nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah. Okay then, the episode this time, Ergo, Season 3, Episode 16 of Stargate SG-1. Premiered in the US January the 28th, 2000, and in the UK February the 2nd of the same year, so not a long wait there. It was written by Tor Alexander Valenza. He wrote six episodes of SG-1, also wrote for The Dead Zone and Dahmer and Greg, but spent most of his time as a story editor on SG-1, working on 45 episodes. The director... Peter DeLuise. Who also makes a guest appearance in the show, too. <laughs> yes, he does, and I laughed myself silly when he appeared. <laughs> so did I. 
Peter directed 56 episodes of SG-1, 6 of Atlantis and 7 of Universe. Also directed episodes of Sanctuary, Garage Sale Mysteries and When Calls the Heart. Also a writer and actor, seen him recently in some Hallmark movies, one particularly alongside his wife. So doing well for himself. Yeah, I'm sure he's mostly moved up to Canada at this point after Stargate. I read a lot about Vancouver and British Columbia that it's not exactly a cheap place to live, one of the most expensive uh, cities in North America. True, I've heard that as well. The episode opens up with a, a close-up view of a computer monitor showing a, a tropical beach taken from uh, the mouth. Looks pretty nice. In fact, it could almost be a moving Windows background, so... The general gives the go-ahead after a little bit of banter between him and Jack. Always a pleasure, that is. I did notice that Sam had a small grin on her face. I'm not quite sure if that was because of uh, watching her boys have a little fun between themselves, or the idea of visiting a tropical paradise appealed to her. He's being pretty playful this episode. Either way, off they go. Yeah. <laughs> when I was watching this, I watched this bit, and then I actually had to back it up and rewatch it, because I realised our favourite tech sergeant isn't here. He's not in this episode. Yeah, that's right. No Walter, no Gary Jones in the episode. <laughs> yeah, that's never a good thing to see when you come back through the Stargate. Too right. A couple of dozen men armed with automatic weapons, all, all looking at you in a menacing way. And there's a general as well. What happened? What happened? That's what I just asked you. <laughs> and it's been a while since I've watched the whole series, but after they had code things for the wrist to open the iris and stuff, right? Yeah, they certainly had the uh, GDOs by this time. So they're totally not following protocol by letting them get through without the signal and all that. That is a very good point. Obviously, some time has passed because all these people are in the gate room, including some serious artillery. Yeah. Perhaps it makes you wonder exactly how soft uh, General Hammond is when it comes to SG-1, even at this point in, in the show. We do know at times it can be iron-hard in his will to obey protocols. Other times, he takes risks when he thinks it's an educated gamble. Perhaps this is one of those times. Yeah. <laughs> We get the revelation that they've been gone for 15 hours and cut to the title sequence. Yeah. We return and we're in the infirmary. Dr. Frazier's there. Can't find any evidence of uh, problems with SG-1. Uh, the general, as he says, uh, goes over the fact that they were missing for 15 hours. They sent a second mop. No trace of SG-1. Confusing. Obviously, a little later in the day, they're in the briefing room, uh, analysing the video from the second malt, which shows pretty much the same picture that the first malt seen. But as Sam points out, where is the first malt? It should be sitting there in the video footage, but it's not. So this is a manipulated image at best. That's something they've really established in the show, that you can always see the malt when you come through the gate and everything. Yeah, it's normally sitting at one side of the gate. Yeah. Sam manipulates the video again, and we see a lot of uh, static slowly rewinds and we get a single frame that shows some sort of alien laboratory. Yeah. It kind of looks like a redress of the the one that from I think season one, the underwater lab with the guy who's tied with the Sumerians in the Babylonian culture. Nem. Yeah. Then we get the coffee sequence. <laughs> was it Sam that actually started it all off, mentioning how good the coffee was? No, actually I believe it was Jack or Daniel. Yeah, and this is the point where Tilk grabs the carafe of coffee and basically upends it, drinks a lot of it. Very, very, very hot coffee. 
They must have had ice or something because you can actually see some steam rising off of it as he takes away from his mouth. Isn't that hot? Extremely. And that's why all takeaway coffee has a lid. <laughs> I was working at McDonald's when that all went down. <laughs> Interesting times. <laughs> that's one of the little things that annoys me about TV and movie production. Whenever somebody goes to get a cup of coffee or something, it's obvious that the container has no liquid in at all. You can tell the way they're holding it, that it's empty and they're faking it. Yeah, so I've noticed that a lot. If they could put some water in there, they, just the water would force the wrist to hold it a little bit steadier and a little bit more on an even keel and everything. Here we are in the commissary canteen. Jack is looking at some highly classified material. I'm pretty sure that even though everybody in the SGC has some sort of a top secret clearance, they've signed NDAs, etc., you probably shouldn't be putting that, in, that sort of documentation for anybody to read. Anyhow, there's pie. Jack never thinks clearly when pie is involved. <laughs> yeah, I've never been able to eat a pumpkin pie like that. Ugh. Never actually had pumpkin pie. In fact, the only time I've seen a pumpkin is for about a few days when they appear outside of the supermarkets. On the off chance, an American citizen happens to walk by. Oh, yeah, no, it, it's either a pumpkin pie or a pecan pie from the looks of it, but it doesn't look dark enough for pecan pie. Well, whatever it is, it seemed to trigger some sort of response. Tilk, Sam and Daniel all make their way to the canteen, where there is a veritable feast laid out before them. Yeah, one more instance of just this total focus on the canteen food with SG-1, and pretty colours of the jello. I mean, it was a big part of the time travel episode, or the Groundhog Day episode. And in a weird way, it's almost a little reminiscent of the canteen and are you being served. Wow, while you're being served, that's a blast from the past. One of those shows that you can't really show on television these days because... It was made during a different time. Funnily enough, I think we talked about this a couple of episodes ago with Tim, Mrs. Locum and her cat. <laughs> well, they do get to indulge themselves for a while before being called back to a medical, followed closely by the security guards. <laughs> now we're in the infirmary. Yeah. Oh, brain scans of everyone. Indeed. Janet says she's found anomalies in all their brain scans, a piece of alien technology in the same place in each of their brains. Possible to remove, in fact they haven't even got the technology to actually put something like that into a human's brain. And she's detected an electromagnetic field as well. <laughs> yeah. Now, the I just paused it on the magnified vision of the stuff that's in the brain. The one thing that hit me is it really looks like that object they found on the moon that like shot spikes through the wall and everything. Yeah, season two episode, Message in a Bottle. Yeah, that made me wonder if maybe, maybe there was some intent to tie that civilization that made Ergo in with that one, since, you know, all the human civilizations are tied together through the show. Yeah, never really thought of that, but looking at the images, they definitely look similar. But as we know, uh, the writers of SG-1 have, over the years, put little plot elements in and gone back and expanded upon them. And we seem to forget the ones that they don't. So perhaps this was one of them. Yeah, yeah, I know. This show's actually really good about keeping their continuity and remembering something that happened in an earlier episode and carrying it forward a little bit, even if it wasn't too central to the show. Yeah, when it all works out, it's inspired writing. <laughs> right. So when the general hears about the implants, he has no option but to quarantine SG-1 on level 22 which turns out to be a reasonably comfortable-looking tweet. 
and desks, tables, chairs. At least better than some of the uh, <laughs> some of the cells they've used for quarantine in the past. And of course, this is where we get our first little taste of Ergo. Boring. I was thinking the exact same thing that Ergo just says. <laughs> you said that wasn't me. What do you say we all go do something? <laughs> Granted, there doesn't seem a lot to do in this room. Yeah, because it actually looks like the university I went to, uh, UW Parkside, which was pretty much all concrete slabs and, and such like that built in the 60s, early 70s, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't seem conducive to learning. Not really, no. <laughs> you all can see me, right? Apparently. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Hello, hello, hello. Uh -huh. Now you all say it. Hello, Ergo. Ergo. <laughs> I enjoy all the things he's about to say about what he's been picking up from their brains. Basically, all I put in my notes is, and so it begins, smiley face. Yeah. Now, after Ergo has revealed himself, he goes into some discourse with the group. Some, of course, catches on fairly quick. Jack, not so fast. We get uh, mentions of a controlled hallucination. Ergo can hear their thoughts. <laughs> and, of course, he asks the ultimate question about Mary Steenbergen. He gets confused. By the way, who is Mary Steenbergen? This is incredible. I mean, the devices must be linked somehow. Sam correctly identifies that the systems are networked together. They can all uh, respond to each other as well as Ergo monitoring all of them. Of course, this doesn't help the guard, who is totally oblivious to the fact that Ergo is standing there. We've said it before. Credit to the actor who has to keep a straight face at all times when Dom DeLuise is acting around him. I wonder if he got hazard pay. <laughs> yeah, because he had to have been riffing quite a bit with some of the stuff. <laughs> Who's Mary Steenbergen? <laughs> That's kind of a deep cut for him. <laughs> I actually watched a movie uh, the other night with her in it, Four Christmases, played uh, the mother of one of the main characters. Can't blame Jack. Always had a thing for Mary Steenburgen. I don't think I've seen that film. A fair to middling Vince Vaughan-led romantic comedy opposite Reese Witherspoon. Good cast, though. Okay. We return to the infirmary, and this is where the four of them are sitting around, rather despondent-looking. They're very breakfast clubby looking Yeah, I can see that. The guard is loyally following him, standing in the doorway. Ergo spots the defibrillator and asks what, what this is. He certainly wants to try it. We also learn that he can't really impose his will upon others, which is then kind of thrown out the window when Tilk stands up, approaches the defibrillator, turns it on and goes to use the paddles upon himself. <laughs> Tilk has succumbed to the allure of Ergo. Right. <laughs> I always wondered how he was able to get Tilk to come over and do that. Junior was still in him at this point. Or Tilk was like, yeah, it's not going to hurt me. Why not? I would probably put money on Ergo being more powerful than he's letting him know. Yeah. Tilk definitely has the willpower to resist something he doesn't want to do. So it was kind of weird that Tilk jumped. Oh, and I did enjoy him. What does he look like? A famous tenor. Yeah, that was another priceless line. Something you can only really get away with if, A, you're a fantastic writer. B, you're working with somebody who can deliver and improvise. Yeah. I wonder if this episode wasn't written by DeLuise, if Dom was in mind for the writer when he wrote it, or just when Peter read it to direct it, went, oh, this is my dad's role. Okay, let me give him a call. Well, by all accounts, most of Ergo's lines are ad-libs and improvisations. 
So it makes you wonder if the idea or the concept of the episode came first. Tor got hold of it, gave it the rough outline, and then pretty much <laughs> they gave it to Dom and go for it. Regardless, this is one of the problems when you get somebody like Dom DeLuise on set. Like anybody who is a strong improviser, you really never know what you're going to get. It's bad enough if you're off camera, you know, reacting to somebody. But when you are on camera and you're not supposed to react like the guard in the, in the infirmary, then God help the poor man. While there are a number of guards in this episode, only one really gets any credit, and that Nicholas Barrick. And it's difficult to tell if that is the actor in question. I'm leaning towards the fact that it is, but either way, if you look closely, you can see his eyes roving all over the place. He's making an effort not to look at Dom DeLuise. But even then, you know he's reacting. You can see little, little micro-expressions, and some not-so-micro on, on his face. Yeah, this one this must have been hell to film. <laughs> yeah, because he does look like he's struggling to maintain some composure back there. A little bit. Of course, a lot of the problems is early seasons were filmed in 16mm, eventually moving on to 35mm and then to HD. No getting around the fact that detail is not at a premium on these early seasons, so you can't really get... I mean, the guard, for instance, is already already in the shadow, so being able to read his expressions are difficult. That's something you just have to deal with 90s and even early 2000s television in some cases. The resolution... I restarted watching the new Doctor Who last week, and the first episode rose when it started up on Amazon Prime, like, or no, HBO Max, I'm like, ooh, yeah, this was before HD. I usually don't see the difference, but I noticed at that time. You may have seen a lot of chatter on social media about a Canadian company that are going to be releasing SG-1 on Blu-ray box set. Of course, that doesn't mean they're going to spend a lot of money on remastering the original negatives and redoing the CGI, but it will mean you can buy the later seasons in HD, native HD, which can't be a bad thing. Hopefully they'll do a bit of clean-up on the early seasons, but not too much DNR. We don't want it looking waxy and unnatural. Might have to look into buying it, because I sold all my D- my DVDs of the seasons a few years ago. Like, oh, they're on Netflix. It's okay. I'll get rid of them. And then, like, a month later, Netflix removed them. I'm like, oh, crap. Ah, such is streaming. Years from now, when you're thinking about me, you're going to say, how did I ever get along without that wonderful constant companion? Woof. Years from now? Woof. Woof? Where, where the hell did that come from? I mean, this is... <laughs> oh, God. Dom, he's a, a madman. That and the Cree as well. The Cree thing was awesome. <laughs> it was, but makes a lot of sense. Tilk is probably pre-programmed to respond to that command. I believe it. This scene goes on and on and on and on and on. And it never gets old. The comedic genius, the delivery from Dom DeLuise is perfection. Really does make me want to go and watch more of his films. And like I said, I watched Haunted Honeymoon the other day. I've certainly got Cannonball Run. I've got Silent Movie. Oh yeah, Silent Movie as well. Remembering back to the 70s and 80s, some of the movies he was in that I watched, I think that was kind of something he did a lot as a Dom thing. Yeah, perhaps not as big a movie resume as you'd expect, but he also did a lot of television. Yeah, there was, uh, he was in one of the Smoking the Bandit movies as an Italian doctor. And then he was in Hot Stuff, which is one of my favorite movies from when I was a kid, where he was a cop posing as a pawnbroker buying stolen goods. I don't think I've seen that one. But I had the guy who's the trucker from the Smoking the Bandit movies, and then Luis from Sesame Street, which is one of the reasons why I latched onto it as a younger kid. 
stupid funny and like all of the character actors of the 70s and 60s kind of had a moment where they're a thief selling stuff. Sounds like a movie you had to enjoy at the time. Yeah. Going to be rather dated now, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and we're back in the briefing room. Me, 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 me. Me, 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 me. I think Harlan came close to being annoying to the members of SG-1. But Ergo and Dom DeLuise take it up to a whole new level. It's DeLuise, exactly. Sam informs the general that she has an idea how to get rid of Ergo. And he's been really, really annoying. And I think the general has pretty much reached the level where gives Sam carte blanche to do anything she wants. So while he's <laughs> he's covering his eyes and counting to ten, they all leave. Seven, eight, nine, ten. <laughs> this next scene is rather clever. We have Sam walking along a corridor, supposedly talking with Ergo, who we cannot see, so this could have easily been recorded when Dom DeLuise were not, was not on set. She meets up with Janet and the General. Uh, something is said, which Sam takes offence at. <laughs> Quite rude about Fraser. Too right. Hard to imagine Ergo being nasty, though. Yeah. The General is having serious thoughts about the sanity of SG-1. And Janet tries to explain a little more simply to the General of what's going on inside their brains. They are reacting to real stimuli. They are not imagining Ergo. They are not psychotic. Ergo is real. Yeah. So we're in Sam's lab. She's doing her experiment, experimentation uh, using an EMP to kind of short circuit the alien tech, aka Ergo. He's trying to lead her down the wrong path, but a bit of reverse psychology isn't working. It would be harmless to us, but it should render Ergo impotent. Could you uh, <clears throat> rephrase that? I like the moment of hurt he expressed about being declared impotent by the EMP blast. <laughs> it certainly seems that Ergo is worried about this procedure. Uh, Sam goes around shutting down all the computers, sealing the lab. She tells us that the base is protected. Ergo then offers to become smaller, and uh, in a flash of light he appears a few inches tall. Tiny squeaky voice as well. I'm here, look how teeny weeny I am! <laughs> how could anything this teeny weeny hurt anybody? No look there, so how about being bland and boring? How about looking like this? This? And that's when we get the cameo from Peter DeLuise looking spectacularly cheesy. Yes. <laughs> Cheesiest grin. <laughs> you know what? This could have been Peter's best cameo ever. Might have been. Ah, uh, no sympathy for Ergo. Sam presses the button. Ergo starts to shimmer. I'm melting. Yeah, he tries to pull a fast and Sam informs him that the EMP is on a timer. How much time have I got? <laughs> and off it goes. Everyone's like, oh, he's done, he's gone, sweet. That's it? Yep. I feel no differently. Listen. What? Exactly. Way to go, Sam. We're back at the infirmary. Janet is looking through the medical resorts. She confirms that the device is still present, but no electrical output. So it looks like the safe. Jack, of course, naturally wants to go back on, go back to work, but the general's not having it. He orders them to have a, a week of uh, relaxation, of vacation, under supervision, of course. And then we see a bank of monitors, each one focused on a member of the SG-1. Sam getting her medical checkup. And, oh, God, lost me notes. 
And I, th- I think these, these my notes are in the wrong order. <laughs> I wrote them down on paper because I'm old fashioned. <laughs> Loose leaf A4. I, then I rip it out and put them in order. And I think I just mixed it up. Ah. Janet mentions that she's taking Sandra to the lake, rent a rowboat, invites Sam along. She says, yes, of course. And she starts singing, row, row, row your boat as she leaves the office. <laughs> and then okay. Jack, Tilk and Daniel join in. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Right. Yeah, isn't it? We're back with General. We're we're back with General Hammond and the briefing room. Jack is indignant. I was not singing, so they play the video footage. Okay, if you call that singing. And the cold realization dawns on them. Sacre bleu! <laughs> yep, he's back. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> We've got to be honest and say that they are fortunate General Hammond is still in charge of the SGC because if anybody else was in charge, they would be going to Area 51 and under serious supervision, experimentation even. Let's face it, there have been many people within the military and the civilian contractors who would love to get hold of SG-1 at this point. Simmons, for example. He would have been so hard to deal with. Simmons was too annoying. Or, oh, what's his name? What's his name? Oh, God, I can't remember his name now. <laughs> Tom McBeath plays him. can remember the actor's name, can't remember the character's name. Oh, what's his name? Which one? Are you talking about the one who ended up going off-world to run away from the... Yeah, I am. Oh, yeah, I can't remember. I don't remember what his character's name was either. Uh, Simmons was the slimy one. Mayborn. Harry Mayborn. Mayborn, yeah, there we go. <laughs> it's crazy how your mind can go blank on specific details of a fandom. One that you know very, very well. Oh, yeah. Right then, we're at the gate room, getting ready to send over another map. Just saying that now, not only do we not have Walter, but we don't have the other guy. The guy who, like, handles all the electrical work on the base. Siler. Siler, there we go, yeah. But we do have Vern Alberts as the technician on this episode, played by Bill Nikolai. Yeah. Ergo, of course, is extremely curious about the map. Sam explains to him what it is, basically our version of him. <laughs> Jack, not impressed. He's usually the skeptic as far as accepting a new form of alien or you know, a new life form. This season three is starting just to really get into Jack being Jack, because he was kind of still pretty dour the first half of season one. I suppose we can either put that up with Richard Dean Anderson getting more comfortable with the role, or the simple fact he played it as Jack being more cautious around new people and a new situation. The map transitions through the wormhole. Again, shows us the picture of the uh, tropical paradise. And General Hammond gets on the microphone and requests communication. Ergo, no, he's, uh, he's dead against this idea. He's, he's warning everybody how evil his creators are, how dangerous. But the general tries again, and we finally get a response. Who dares challenge Toga? That voice, that's him. They did just deepen up the voice just enough that it wasn't quite Dom DeLuise talking, that it wasn't entirely obvious the first time you watched. Definitely has the Wizard of Oz vibes, the man behind the curtain. I wonder if that was deliberate. I always got the feeling they did, yeah. It would make a lot of sense. Not only do you have the running Wizard of Oz motif throughout the show, 
but you've also got the idea that there is a power behind Ergo. Then we get the revelation that Ergo was not supposed to work this way. So that kind of uh, also increases the odds that this program, this entity, has gained some sort of sentience. Either way, the being is willing to remove Ergo from SG-1. All they've got to do is return through the Stargate and uh, the procedure will be undertaken. Naturally, Ergo is against this idea. We cut to a locker room. I wonder if every SG team have their own locker room, because we can see name tags on the inside of the closet. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a huge amount of space. This looks similar to the locker room in Brocker Divide. I think it was Brocker Divide where Sam jumped on Jack. <laughs> Although no signs of showers. Back then there was only one locker room though. And the men and the women of the base shared it. They had uh, specified times. So this you see has certainly expanded to cater for more teams. For mixed sex teams as well. The world moves on. <laughs> yeah, I always got the feeling that this was also more of a... This the locker room before going off planet versus the locker room before you're going to go work out. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You've got a staging area where each member of uh, the SGC would keep their personal weapons and armor, other things that are unique to them, and the general locker room where you may change from civilians into a uniform or other clothing, maybe uh, of more general use. That could have just been me adding in crap in my head. Go on, Jeff. We're all speculating. At the end of the day, we're making guesses. Especially when there isn't a commentary on the uh, DVD. Yeah. And this is where, amongst the four members of FG1, Ergo finally acknowledges the fact that he shouldn't have been talking to them in the first place. This wasn't part of his programming or his uh, mission statement. This was him doing it. Again, underlines the fact that the Ergo program is far more than just a simple dumb piece of code. Right. You're not going to convince me it's alive. Look. Hey, 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 hey. He's not really here. <laughs> Jack gets right to the core of it just by waving his hand through Dom. <laughs> ah, yet Daniel comes to his defense, as you might expect. Tilk, not so much so. He points out he's very much like a gold. And then Dom DeLuise's impersonation of Tilk, though, too. Parasite, like old. And of course, it comes down to the Sam Daniel contingent versus the Jack contingent. Now, we explain the situation to this Toga guy, and we let him deal with Hugo once he's out of our heads. Ergo. Ergo. Hugo. When Jack calls Ergo Hugo, I made a note. I wondered if that was a clever allusion to the Hunchback of Notre Dame by the scriptwriter. Well, if it was, it went totally over my head. <laughs> I may just not be familiar with some of the classics. Yeah, you know, English teacher. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go then. Jack grabs his jacket and basically puts his foot down. He is, after all, in command. Yeah. We get a hard cut to the exterior of the gate as SG-1 emerged from it, only to be caught up by a sideways transporter beam. And they reappear in the laboratory. In perfectly clear detail. The very same one that they caught a glimpse of in the video transmission from the map. And I've got to say, very impressed with the technology. The beam, like the Asgard technology, like something like Dolan might use, stripped SG-1 of their weapons and the armour, leaving them, thankfully, with just their clothes. Yeah. And then the big circular doorway rolls open, and a shadowy figure emerges. As handsome as he is evil. Yeah, poor Ergo. He does look terrified. Do not move, or I will render you unconscious, if necessary. Well, doesn't Togar look familiar? Yeah. 
Dom DeLuise playing the, his second character in the episode. Uh, this one uh, has some sort of transceiver attached to his head. Let's be clear, the magic they did was just like Togar using edge trimmer on his uh, facial hair versus Ergo, who hasn't, and just the difference in look so they could differentiate. It does make you wonder why Ergo actually views himself like this as opposed to looking like Togar, or he has no control over it. Either way, it works. It's an interesting juxtaposition. He's a madman. He's an evil, terrible madman. Run for your lives. Of course, it soon becomes apparent that Togar is not this evil, malicious, malevolent entity. He's a scientist. He's doing a job. And Ergo is an unexpected side effect. Togar takes them over to some sort of containment chamber. He waves his hand and some really bizarre creature appears. And he demonstrates the technique for removing the technology from its brain. Simple, looks painless. Unfortunately, the whole idea is lost behind the fact that this is not very good CGI, or is it puppetry? Yeah, this is one of the most cartoony alien creatures they've ever had on the show. I figured it was early CGI. Yeah, you're probably right. We know they experimented with CGI for the gold in the early seasons. Yeah. <laughs> uh I'm sorry, I'm probably ahead of you on the show. I just saw the subtitle for the Jaffa Cake. Ah, you found it. I'm glad it's not just me. It certainly sounded when I watched the episode earlier that he said Jaffa Jaffa Cake. And I thought, well, that doesn't make sense. We know in uh, the Stargate fandom that Jaffa Cakes are a thing. Certainly a very tasty uh, snack. But uh, at the time, I wouldn't have thought so. So much so they'd be part of the writer's room. So my close captioning here has him saying, Give him a double Java Java Kick. I wonder if that's then a reference to the enjoyment of coffee that Ergo experienced through Till. Yeah. <laughs> First step in an addiction is admitting you have one. Come on now. Coffee runs the entire world. It is the lubricant of civilization. <laughs> True. Yeah. The case continues to be made that Ergo is now a sentient life form and deserves a chance at life. Togar is pretty much dead set against it. Uh-oh. <laughs> Jack's like, oh, I had to ask, all right, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, he does speak up, but he drops it pretty quick. Jack isn't really invested at this point. <laughs> yeah. Another argument, put Ergo inside Togar. At the very least, they should be compatible. This is a terrible idea. I'd rather die a painful and horrible death. Yep. And I think I, I have found a note here on my, my notes. The whole him or death thing, I think I must have picked up on the whole Jaffa cake instead of Jaffa kick as well, because I have cake or death. Yeah, I can certainly see. I can certainly see that now. Pie does feature heavily in this episode. I want to live. I want to experience the universe, and I want to eat pie. Who doesn't? Finally, something Jack and Ergo totally agree upon. I do like Daniel's point here. Ergo is everything these people are not. They are curious, but they're not willing to go out and explore themselves, so they send somebody who is willing. He's either side of the coin. If Togar was then willing to take Ergo within himself, they would see a different perspective of their society, of their culture. Something totally new, which could change their their people like no amount of external exploring would ever do. Yeah, and keep the cameras rolling while he's doing it. The episode wraps up with Ergo embedded in Togar. He soon uh, realises the pain and misery Ergo could bring to his life with him uh, an independent intelligence within his own mind. I think they'll get along just fine, though. Hey, I know. Why don't no. we... No. 
Why not? No. It's really fun and exciting. No. Are you sure that we're thinking the same thing? <laughs> Positive. The gang say goodbye to him. Sam takes this opportunity to maybe propose an alliance, at which point Togar immediately beams them away back to Stargate Command. Where they've only been missing for 10 hours. All's well that ends well. Report to the infirmary. My only disappointment with the episode is we never learn more about the civilization. This is one of those just kind of advanced civilizations that they find out is there, but we never interact with them again. Even when we get to Atlantis or, you know, later. It's often the case that we always praise Stargate for when they do pull a storyline up from seasons ago. Credit the writers for doing that. But when you look at it closely, there are lots of loose ends that they never, never pick up again. And we're happy to go along and blissfully ignore them. <laughs> yeah. Listening to Togar now makes you wonder what caused the civilization to go down this route. They must have experienced something that maybe drew them back, or were they always looking for avatars to go and explore worlds? Did they take the Malt technology to the extreme, just because that's what they'd always done? You know, we don't find out if the whole security thing is because they've run into the gold, or did the gold know about them at all? We just kind of assume that. Sometimes the writers only leave us enough information to make assumptions. Yeah. And see, that reminded, that whole aspect of it reminded me of the Pearson Puppeteers from Larry Niven's known space novels and stories. It was an alien race of cowardice. Everything they did was based off of trying to make things safer. Well, safer can be good. Um, to the point of there were no sharp corners in any of their technology or their cities or anything like that. And when they found out their son was, a, their home son was going to go supernova in a couple million years, they found a way to pick up and move their planet to another sun. Because two million years is too close of a, a too close of a time frame to be playing with. <laughs> well, that's the extreme uh, worldview. Of course, it'd be nice if Arrow powers that be would look ahead in even one generation, let alone a billion or so years. Uh, in general, yeah. So that was Ergo. Anything else to add, Jeff? And actually, one of the other episodes I was looking at was one of the other episodes where Adeloise was in. That would have been the Wormhole Extreme episode. Yeah, I've got to admit that when I came up with the idea of having guests on and let them pick their own episodes, I expected Wormhole Extreme to be one of the first chosen. That on Window of Opportunity. Um, I actually got the suggestion, because when you say, like, you know, pick an episode anyway, I'm like, oh crap, that's a lot of episodes. And I almost went with what I think was my first episode that I appeared on with you and Alan, which was the Space Race episode. But I found a TikToker that I started following. She's doing a rewatch of the entire SG-1 series. And I was like, hey, I'm going to be on a podcast for Stargate throw me some episode suggestions. And this is one of the ones she suggested. She also suggested, of course, Window of Opportunity, the Groundhog Day episode. But once I saw Ergo, I'm like, yeah, Alan hated Ergo. Let's do Ergo. Yeah, he never was a fan. One of the times, like, I just didn't agree with, with Alan's opinion. Like, it was a fun episode. It was. It was simply a very fun episode. Brought to a level that very few people could have done who don't have the talent of Dom DeLuise. Yeah. Right then. Gotta say, Jeff, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It was a pleasure, as always, to talk to you. Thank you for asking me. It was kind of cool to have you send me a message out of the blue going, hey, you want to do another episode? Like, yeah, it's been way too long, as we discussed beforehand. Yeah, the secret of podcasting. You only actually hear about half of what <laughs> what is actually talked about during a recording session. I enjoy doing this when I can find the time for it. For me, the I'd always be worrying about, okay, I can find the time, but is that going to be a time good time for Mike to do? Because we're separated by six hours. 
Yeah, it was a lot easier to organise when we had a regular weekly schedule. Uh, the regular guests, we knew uh, what time they worked, what time they were free. Now it's <laughs> juggling schedules, trying to make it work, even with the uh, COVID. People still don't always have the free time just to go on and chat for an hour TV show. Yeah. What are you up to now then, Jeff? Yeah, I have to go to my lodge in Kenosha and sit there while a guy comes through and checks all the fire extinguishers and stuff so that I can then call the fire department and go, hey, guys, we're no longer going to burn down and I'll die here. Could you come sign off on our fire inspection? Yep, still a lot to do despite everything. Yeah. Okay then, folks, if you want to get in touch, and I'd love to hear from you, you can find us at stargatearchives.com. Email is stargatearchives at gmail.com. We are, of course, on Facebook and Tumblr. You can also find our feeds on Podbay, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Amazon Music. Uh, we also have a manual feed that you can uh, copy and paste into any podcatcher that gets you the full archive of shows. Feel free to get in touch. Give me an episode of <laughs> any other live-action Stargate you want to talk about, and we'll uh, arrange a time to chat over Skype. Either way, keep listening, enjoy the show. If you can, uh, rating and review is always welcome. Barring all that, keep watching Stargate. Enjoy the show wherever it will be found, especially on social media. We've got a very good presence on Twitter, at TheGateCast. Very, very good community over there. We'd love to hear from you. So, till next time, I've been Mike. I've been Jeff. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.